This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass. My name is James Roy. I am Program Manager at Westwards and today I'm talking to Augusta Supple. Hello, how are you? Hi James, I'm good. How are you? I'm well. We are yet again um, in Daffodil Cottage. When I say we are yet again, I am yet again in Daffodil Cottage with one of the (laughs) residents. Um, I just want to acknowledge the Adess Family Foundation for their uh, generosity in making this program work and also to Katie Jenkins who owns the property. So thank you to those kind people. So Augusta, you're here for a week. I am. Doing work. Yes. Tell us what work you're doing. Well, at the moment, it's a little bit of um, it's a little bit of an adventure at the moment because I have most of my experience, I think, writing most recently short stories, but at the moment, I'm transitioning into writing for TV and screen, mm. and so I thought the best way to do that is in the privacy of a cottage in the middle of the Blue Mountains, uh, where no one can really see what I'm doing or know that I am perhaps failing or succeeding spectacularly I guess how do you feel? time will tell how do you feel like you're going? at the moment I'm having such a great time I think that there is there is that sort of uh, slump that sometimes happens um, when you're writing especially something quite new or or you're working in a format or in a way that is different to what you're used to so I have a background as a playwright so I understand the world of the theatre really well Mm -hmm. and I was a theatre critic for a bit and so I feel really confident in that space and so because of that commitment for such a long time I didn't own a tv and I wasn't home to watch tv I know which means (laughs) that my my tv and film education was really quite slender um because I, I had set myself a task of reading a play a week and going to the theatre as many times a week as I possibly could. So my first, my first deep true love, which I'll probably never get over, is actually theatre. What is it about theatre? I mean, we've had a few theatre people coming mm. through this program. Um, what is it about theatre that really excites you? I think the fact that it can only exist within a collective experience. And it is live and it's temporal, it's ephemeral. It, it means that you really have to be there. And to write for it means that you need to be able to write for a, in a way that inspires a director who, to be really confident about where to steer the audience's attention without being clumsy or mm. overt or difficult. So it's actually technically quite difficult because you need to be an ultimate collaborator when mm. you're working in theatre. I've always said but that... But it's also a collaboration that doesn't really pay off until way down the, in the future either, isn't it? You've got to sort of see yeah. the possibilities for that collaboration before they're even... But also you have to leave gaps for it as well. It, yeah. it has to have enough space for the lighting designer to lean into it, for the set design, the costume designer, for the actor themselves to really fully flesh things out. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. I think it theatre is sculptural more mm. than sort of photographic and so I'm I'm here at the moment actually trying to unlearn a lot of theatre things mm-hmm. and trying to learn a new language of writing which is 
screenwriting, which I'm sort of powering through at the moment and um, enjoying myself in the process. But there's a few times where I stop myself and think, oh, gosh, is this a little bit theatre? Is this a little bit big? Yeah, because I remember Brooke Robinson, I I interviewed Mm -hmm. her and um, she said the same sort of thing that... um, part of the challenge of writing is not putting everything down and basically letting stepping back and letting go and going, mm. I've got to give the director something to do here. Mm. And I think my understanding from talking to people like Ian David is, is that screenwriting is very much the same, that at some point you've got to take some words off the page and just go, the character is, this is what, they're challenge, what they're, the challenge they're facing. Now let the director and the actor do their thing. Absolutely. And I, and I, I struggle with that myself yeah. because I'm a, I'm a prose writer primarily. Yeah. Did you find that that was? Do you think it? How do you find prose writing when you when you're in that kind of? It's nearly. Space? It's absolutely nearly impossible. I've recently um, only started taking up writing short stories. Really, I was inspired really by my good friend um, Luke Carmen, who very generously often um, <laughs> heads up a, a competition called Zine West, which mm. is based in Parramatta and Western Sydney. And he really encouraged me. He said, look, really, you should just have a go at it and see how it goes. But I find it such a torturous experience because there is no collaborator when you're a prose writer and a, or, you know, writing short stories. Um, and recently I had a, a short work that I asked Luke and also my other friend Jack Ellis to give me some notes on. And um, I have to say it was in those conversations with those writers who have got several books under their belts each that I actually um, I felt most alive in that collaborative oh. moment of, of writing or spitballing ideas or the sort of what-if moments that can come up when you're collaborating with someone as opposed to just sort of sitting in solitary confinement, you know, oh. just sort of scribbling away and and doing that. Um, Theatre is very collaborative, very sculptural, and it's also full of chance as well um, because there is something about figuring out where the energy shifts happen in real time, where when you're dealing with a reader, you don't have to worry about their energy shifts so much more than you need to compel them to keep reading the next sentence mm-hmm. um, and, and making that an enjoyable sort of experience I think yeah I sometimes wonder whether when when we write prose whether we need to find a way of doing something similar to the uh, the staged reading that that playwrights do and, and screenwriters do where everyone sits there and they read the, read the script and they go okay what do you think about that can we can, can we improve this change this or whatever I wonder if there's a place for doing that as prose writers. Well, I think that's that's what the magical thing about writing is, is because even though writing is one kind of, I guess, tradition, you start switching between languages and forms and genres even. You can learn from a whole bunch of different forms. So a lot of my um, fiction writing can be a little bit too poetic at times and I think that also some of the dialogue inside my prose writing is a little bit too theatre at times but what's been really useful is in this particular circumstance where I'm trying to write a, a screen play or a tv pilot um, which is 
interesting for all of the different art departments. That's kind of that the aim, so that there's something in the sort of stage directions that are inherently compelling or visual or inspiring for those different departments that work mm. on on it. Um, so that there's something in it for them creatively. Yeah, I mean, I guess if writing for film, you. you you do need to do what you've just described where you find yourself being a bit dialogue heavy in your in your pose because yeah. you're, you're sort of tapping into that theatre space where dialogue is everything, yeah. almost everything, not quite, but very Pauses close. are pretty big as pauses well. Are, pauses, pauses are, big are pretty well. big and, yeah. And I guess from that point of view, screenwriting is quite similar, but you also can have entire scenes in a, in a, in, um, in a screenplay where nobody says a word. It's just mm. all laid out on the page and stage direction and then off you go. Mm. Um, so short story, short stories. Mm. Did you find that um, since you've been cutting your teeth pretty heavily on on the short story thing, did you find that that lent itself to writing short form TV rather than motion picture? Is that? Yeah, well, I guess what was kind of interesting is I was looking at the sort of conversion rate. So this is this is me being a little bit nerdy about looking at the conversion rate between when a short story makes converts into another form of storytelling. So when well, I think... Stephen of, King's done it a lot, with, but they're more novellas, aren't they, really? Absolutely. And also I think, you know, you look at Henry Lawson as well and you can look at Drover's Wife um, or the, you know, and sort of see how that's made a conversion. Yeah. So for me, um, I think also the movie Secretary, do you know that one yeah. with Maggie Gyllenhaal um, and James Spader? Okay. Um, so that was that was a short, um, I think that was a short story that was in The New Yorker, I think, and that became a, a feature film. So I think that with the short story, what's interesting about the form of it is that great short stories often have... Um, you know, a little bit of a twist or a reveal um, that's kind of quite unexpected in that sort of fourth act kind of mm-hmm. situation. So the climax build. So in a way, it sort of lends itself to a performance structure that we'd sort of understand. And when writing for, I think, writing for TV or or maybe for, for theatre, that we're looking for that kind of five-act structure as well. So. Did you ever see the movie Shortcuts, the the um, Robert no. Altman film? No. Um, now I think I want to say Raymond Carver, but it might have been Chandler. Which one of those two wrote the really hard boiled ones? Was that? I don't know. Carver, I think. Anyway, American short story writer, and basically um, Robert Altman has taken a whole different bunch of them. Including the one that uh, got made into Jindabyne about the, mm. the body they find. Yeah, with in, Gabrielle in the, Byrne in it. Yeah. yeah, the body they find in the water, and then of course the mm. the um, the Paul Kelly song. But that comes from mm. one of these stories, and so that's included in there. But it's all these short stories where the characters all kind of know each other through very tenuous connections, mm. but then it creates this web. It's very good. Recommend it. Hard to find, but if you can find it, Shortcuts by Robert Olsen. Okay. Superb. (laughs) Um, Do you aspire to writing longer form, like motion picture, movie, if you like? I think so. Um, I'm not really sure what I'm doing at the moment, to be totally honest. I guess um, what I'm doing is I'm... uh, (laughs) I'm just going to spend this week writing. So at the moment, I've got about, about 20 pages in... 
And I think what I might aspire to is um, it might turn into, I, I think I'm writing um, the first season pilot, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It'll be whatever, you know, ultimately I'll write whatever I want to, I guess, and whatever opportunities sort of come my way. I think it's sort of, it's really important. Um, there's a, there's, I guess there's a fine line as well being the kind of person that sticks to something to become a master of it mm. and someone who wants to sort of dip in and experiment with different forms because it might inform one of the other forms. Mm. And I guess that cross-pollination is kind of what I'm interested in. Ultimately, I think I think TV is really exciting at the moment just because of the, the breadth of um, time, space, characters that you can really pump into it and um i'm kind of new to watching television yeah right. so so what have, what, what what have you watched where you've gone oh so that's this thing that everyone's been talking about for years and suddenly discover it yeah i think i think that there's been it's look i'm kind of a little bit out of date in the same way that when i was a teenager I was a teenager during the 90s and everyone was into grunge but oh. i was into jazz mm. so my appreciation of grunge happened later in So you're like, life. what's a Nirvana? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Nirvana, well, that's what I experience every day. Um, but <laughs> when, I'm play, know, when I'm playing what, Brubeck. Yeah, yeah, that's right. When mm. I'm just, you know, wearing my black beret and jazzing it up. Um, but I, so I guess I'm a little bit, I'm a bit laggy. So, so what, what have West you, Wing, I really, really enjoy solid, West Solid Wing. choice. Solid yes, choice. I really Especially like, in the context yeah. of what we've just watched in the last four years, right? It's like, oh my yes. God, what could have been? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty in, intense. Back when the office of the president was actually respected. Well, yeah, and mm. that there was a gravitas to things and mm. there was this sort of like, you know, but also anyone who's worked in a bureaucracy would love uh, the West Wing and I, I myself have, uh, am a um, survivor of bureaucracy. Mm. <laughs> so um, I'd also say in that vein on Australian Shores, uh, Utopia is a really fantastic and quite triggering show for anyone that's worked inside the bureaucracy. Well, I just love the fact that... Um, they had that episode about the uh, doing a scoping study, not not the actual report, but a scoping study for the report to talk about maybe thinking about putting in a fast rail network, and it was just a distraction for the election. And then, right on cue, two years later, coming up to an election, what did the government announce? We're going to do a scoping study on yeah, the fast rails. Like, exactly. You've been stealing utopian storylines. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a, it gets a little bit too close to the bone. They're very, and they're very good. Those guys are they're working dog guys. They're very um, astute observers of things like that and the front. I guess your front line you would have got into yeah. at some point and, and that, yeah. yeah, this observation of yeah, as you say, bureaucracy and the absolutely that organism. And I guess um, sort of more recently as well, because when you're talking about organisms, I think. Um, the ecosystem that can happen within a TV show is really interesting as well about the sort of, you know, what the sort of parameters are that that people can exist inside that Petri dish. 
<laughs> for a sustained period of time. So I guess Orange is the New Black mm -hmm. is a really fantastic example of, um, you know, female-led, female-dominated um, sort of storylines, but also, you know, creative teams, which I, of course, I'm um, always really uh, supportive of and interested in. And, the, and I guess um, more recently I really enjoyed um, a series uh, called The Bear, and uh, which is uh, about a sort of Chicago chef, uh, the brother of a Chicago chef. Um, and yeah, I guess I, because I'm so new to it and I'm kind of theatre trained, I look at TV in a slightly different way. So I have a very low personal threshold for reality TV. I can't, mm. I can't even come at that as... Mm something to be yeah, it's kind of horrible isn't it i mean the word re yeah. reality is just very ironically i think well i think i i don't know how how much narcissists do deal with reality to be honest and i think that a lot of those shows really do attract you know certain personality types um yeah i remember so, seeing years ago there was a reality show where they put a whole bunch of british people on an island and but they didn't have any challenges they were just put there and they watched them and they all just sat around going it's very hot I yes. don't like it. I want to go home. Which is kind of what which they is, do on our is, island, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's like we are an island. Well, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> all, all opinions expressed know. on this podcast are not necessarily those of this ones, but sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, yeah. So I guess, you know, I, I'm still sort of snacking quite widely on different sort of TV shows. I think in a comedy way, one of the, the TV shows I really like actually is an early Simon Pegg. Um, show which is which is called Spaced, yep. uh, which is really simple premise, mm -hmm. um, but really I think quite um, tight and contained. Uh, the premise is that two people need to sort of find a way to to flat um, together, and so they pass themselves off. Um, I think as a couple, and um, of course hilarity ensues. Of course, yeah. Because it's well, it's England. Everything's funny in England. Um, Is it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think Except so. Because I've, I've never been there. Except so Boris I'm Johnson, just going to say, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting watching these shows, these long, long form shows like, say, Mad Men. Mm, or fantastic. The Sopranos show. that go for yeah. for seven, eight, ten seasons, and there's always a lull somewhere in the middle where mm -hmm. they kind of lose their way a little bit. Um, do you find that interesting from a writing perspective? I do, and I, I sort of I think about that because the technical element of that is about I think it's the what the sort of driving force is within the core of the story, mm. and I think for Mad Men there are sort of like two story engines that are really driving it in a significant way. I kind of felt like that way as well about um, another TV show that I I quite like, uh, Billions, which mm. um, sort of had this very strange transition, I, I guess, when Damien Lewis left the show. Yeah, um, it sort of lost its way a bit then, didn't it? Yeah, well, it sort of had to do a massive, massive gear change. It's sort of like it asked us to get out of our Mercedes-Benz and get into a Tesla uh, is how I kind of... You know, so that there was just a different energy mm. about what was being written and how it was being written. Um, but, yeah, I do find it all very technically interesting because a lot of these things have got to do with negotiating and collaborating in a, in a sort of larger 
petri dish than you know you keep using that term <laughs> i know it's because i i'm thinking about this residency yeah, thanks, as, that's, but, a, that's the title yeah, of this podcast life in the petri life dish life in the petri dish which is about it, petri dish is about also seeing what grows you know and i think daffodil cottage is for me why i wanted to be here is to, just to see what could grow um and to experiment with it you know to see if i can inoculate some things inside this petri dish and see how how it actually flourishes or if it kills everything or if it off. just turns into a really soup it could turn into some sort of terrible some sort of pre primordial soup that never evolves or something i don't totally know. totally um i wanted to very quickly wanted to ask you uh just a couple more questions um all the time that you spent working in the bureaucracy mm of arts administration yes. and so forth. How, how, most of us who create for a living haven't been through that. We yes. go to that, we go through a different door. We go through the door with our hands out going, can we please have some help? Yeah. How do you think that has, if it has at all, affected the way you approach your creative out, output? Look, the reason why I crossed the floor, so to speak, into the bureaucracy um, initially was because I wanted someone like me on the inside. And joining, you know, at that time, I was under the wing of, I think, one of the greatest bureaucrats that the Australian art scene has ever had, which is a wonderful woman called Kim Spinks, who is ferocious and smart and passionate and intelligent and also a practitioner herself Mm. so while i was inside the bureaucracy i really cared about cultivating and bringing in artists from time to time to work inside the bureaucracy so that they can sit outside it and know exactly how it works and feel confident in um, their own skills and abilities so i knew that i wasn't going to be a lifer inside the bureaucracy and I also knew that it was I was there for um, not necessarily a good time but definitely a productive time and while I was there I, I I did a lot of good work with a lot of great people I learned so much and you know really sort of got to champion the things that I um, got uh, was really inspired by but I think that the creative self is such an important part of the health and well-being of people. And it's really important to take that time, some time to actually go, well, actually, you know, my, my life feels a bit wonky right now or maybe I'm not as fun or as interesting as I could be. What's wrong here? Have I had a sandwich? Have I had a shower today? Am I wearing new underpants? Okay, those things are fine. What is it? Oh, I haven't done anything creative for myself. And so I think as a part of self-care, I think artists, um, sometimes people might see artists as being a little bit entitled or selfish or or self-contained and self-possessed, but actually what they're practising is ultimate radical creative self-care. And that is why we need artists in our community and why they should be funded and why that there should be a universal basic income to support all of them because they remind us of that inherent and powerful and important part of um, of being nourished as a human being, which is to reflect and to express the human condition in sometimes very abstract forms, sometimes very literal forms. And I think that that's... That inside there is that's where joy lives, and that, we should be joyful. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a massive conversation that still continues. I mean, there have been 
we could talk for a long time about you know because I've I've worked in um, bureaucracies as well similar to the one you're talking about and um, yeah there's a massive conversation to be had and we keep trying to have it and certain some governments invite us to talk about it others sort of basically mm. say it's a lifestyle choice you're on your own mm. um, and that, that might be something we could talk about at a later date but we won't we won't uh, we won't stick our grubby fingers in the petri dish <laughs> today because I'd hate to make that petri dish grow something unsavoury. There was one more thing I wanted to talk to you about, about uh, digital engagement within the arts and, and digital mm. collaboration or how we approach our art in a new, a new kind of technological age and all the pros and cons that a horrible event like COVID have actually, and it has brought pros and cons to the way we practice. Would you like to reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, I would, because I think I think it's very important for us to acknowledge the absolute trauma that we've been through because of COVID. Mm. Um, not just the spectre or the idea that there is this invisible force that is damaging lives, but actually the sort of the limitations that we've had put on our... Um, our sort of expectations, I guess, of what we thought we were doing mm. in 2019 and where we would be now. Um, but uh, because of just my natural disposition, I'm always kind of quite hopeful and I like to think of things in terms of what have been the benefits. Yep. And one of the gifts of COVID has really been about having that opportunity to be able to collaborate and keep in contact with um, people who are all across the world and that we start finding that digital um, sort of digital technologies and digital platforms are able to bust through uh, geographic or geopolitical uh, boundaries or locked borders or lockdowns in a way. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing that it took COVID to put the lie to what Tony Abbott said when he said that, mm. that we don't, the reason for a fast broadband is so we can watch Netflix when the rest of us all kind of understood that the reason between an NBN was education and health, right? Yeah, and a part and, of that health is connection. And con- correct, yeah. and, and, and cultural connection, exactly right. Yeah. Um, and maybe it took COVID to remind us all of that. I think that there's been so many reminders that COVID gave us. It, yeah. it reminded, like, did you know, James, you probably do because of your other, your other life, but during COVID, there were more, the, the sort of ukulele sales in Australia just went through the roof. The instrument, musical instrument sales went through the roof. And that's because actually we hit a stage, I think, where we wanted to be in the presence of something tactile again. Um, and the hot, take, the hot take from that, people, is that there are now a whole range of very, very cheap second-hand instruments on the market that people haven't actually played. But. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, but I'm, I'm a person that bought a flute during COVID and I, you know, I, I say I'm not sorry at all for no, that moment. But definitely no, you're absolutely a, right. A, a, but that, one yeah. of those things is, is that basically, you know, we, we yearn for a creative outlet mm. and even if we've been a really crummy trombone player in the high school band at some stage, there is that nostalgia and that sentiment and that embodiment that that music making gives that's so important. And all those lovely stories we saw of people, you know, sitting on their balconies in sort of 
apartment blocks all playing music together across the yeah that was a whole that was a whole day and actually there was also massive things with a, a program called make music day which you know had people playing outside the windows of nursing homes and mm, things like mm, that like mm. we we yearn for connection we look for connection and one of the the great um sort of things was that as soon as the borders opened up again um i i went over to the us i went to los angeles and i reached out to my friends who i've known for i've known i've known my friend james for many years and i said look i'd like to know some people that you think i should be friends with and i met the magical beth bruckner o'brien who is just hilarious talented funny, smart, every, everything that you could want to be in a person. And we started talking and sharing some of our experiences and found this really, really deep connection because even though we, we are from different countries and, and, you know, quite in some ways, different sensibilities, we found a connection, a creative connection that was really, really powerful um, and so after sharing some stories with her, she's really encouraged me, um, particularly in my writing and we keep in contact. Um, I also have another um, friend who during COVID um, has been certifying as an intimacy coordinator, which of course is a very uh, new space, especially in theatre and film around really the choreography of intimacy and, and touch. And so I'm working with Shondell Pratt um, as well on basically some of the ideas about how to express that in a literary form because I think, you know, there's a very big difference between describing um, sexual in- intimacy in a script in many different ways and what does that give the actor or the director, um, you know, how, how does it set the tone for that rehearsal and then that actual performance. So... For me, again, the Petri dish is all about really learning, experimenting and really opening myself up to all the things that I don't know mm. what, how to do or what I'm doing and then asking others to just help me, yeah. <laughs> which has been really joyful and, and really look, that's, wonderful that's, to do. For the, for the most part, I think most of us in the industry would agree that with the odd churlish exception People are very keen to kind of support and help and advise and 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 increasingly to ask for that help, I think. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that um, really is the strength of organisations and the, and the people that are inside small to medium organisations is that no one is doing the jobs that they're doing inside the arts for the massive pay packet and the massive trophies. What? When did this happen? I know. <laughs> I think everyone's doing it because truly the arts in Australia is driven primarily by a sense of um, altruism and optimism and passion Mm. and stubbornness and doggedness and in the case of some some good folks I know they just feel like they're not equipped to do anything else with their life Mm. and I that's what I love about the arts is that we are always um i think you know building on each other's work and we're always stronger when we're um regarding each other with ultimate respect and care yeah beautiful well that's a nice nice place to leave it so augusta supple thank you so much for talking to us and thanks again to the Des family foundation and katie jenkins for the daffodil program and uh we'll catch up again soon thanks